welcome back to the show. It's great to be here again. Make sure that you subscribe to the show. If you haven't done that already, you're way behind on this. So if you're on YouTube, hit the subscribe button. Or if you're on Spotify, make sure you hit the follow button. And make sure you like, comment, share, do all that great stuff on social media. Uh, My guest today, Mr. Ron Young from the band Little Caesar. And of course, when you think Little Caesar, you probably think of the pizza place. And we're going to talk about that and why the band is named the, the same thing as a pizza place. And it always bothered me. Now I got the, I finally figured out the story behind that whole thing. And, uh, you know, this band is a good band, though. I mean, they toured with Kiss. And he got some really good advice from Gene Simmons when he was on that tour. And uh, also got some advice from John Bon Jovi. And he's got really cool stories about that. He later went on to form the band Manic Eden with uh, Adrian Vandenberg, Rudy Sarzo, and Tommy Aldridge. And uh, he also flirted with uh, joining Slash's band at kind of an extended tryout there. And he was also in, believe it or not, he was in the Red Hot Chili Peppers for a little while, like I think a few weeks. And they wrote songs together and uh, Anthony Kiedis was out doing rehab or something. So pretty crazy stories. He also had an acting role in Terminator 2. He's got stories about Tommy Lee and Fidel Castro. This is a really fun episode. Ron is a great storyteller. You guys are going to enjoy this one. Check it out. Please welcome Ron Young to the podcast. How you doing, Ron? Good. I'm well. How that's, you doing? that's great. I'm doing great. I'm doing amazing. It's Monday. We're back. It's uh back to the week. Back to work, I guess. Yeah. And I've had a I've had a crazy morning. I've got you know, I've got a ranch farm place. Yeah. Down. I got two new cows that just showed up right before Thanksgiving. And I got another horse coming and I gotta completely reconfigure my barn. So I'm down there with tractors and big metal panels and you know, I'm like, oh, I gotta run up and play Rockstar. I'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, where is your? You're in California, still, right? So, in how California? I'm about an hour and fifteen minutes outside of Hollywood, up in Ventura County, towards Santa Barbara, in a big agricultural area. So, I've got 1,200 avocado trees and pomegranates, and I've got uh, 19 animals. Up to actually 21, going to be 22 animals next week. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, Dogs that, and feral cats and fish and cows and pigs and donkeys and dogs. And, yeah. That actually sounds amazing. I think Santa Barbara, that area is beautiful. When I, I'm from Seattle originally, but I moved to Phoenix. And I was when I was going to move to the sun, it was between Phoenix and Santa Barbara. But I just couldn't afford California. so expensive. It is really expensive. And, and then there's all the personality that goes with it too that's kind of hard to do <laughs> right yeah because you're from originally from you grew up in queens is that correct yeah so i'm a new york guy came to california and people are like how long you been here since since the 80s They're like oh you're like a native i'm like no i'm a new yorker on an extended stay let's just mm-hmm. keep it that way. right um, so then did you work as a nightclub bouncer was that in queens or or la or both no, i was out here in la that was at this great place called club laundry that was a great showcase place and this place called the music machine um and the screen too so uh, some of the hot clubs back in the 80s i was you know i wasn't a bouncer i was a doorman so that new york sort of selectivity of who comes in and who doesn't and who you give a hard time to and you open the door and I had a big bouncer standing behind me in case anybody gave me crap. So. Oh, okay. So you're the guy that's like, okay, you're hot. You can come in and no, you're too yeah. old. You can't come in. Yeah. And okay. all the band members, I just bring them right up to the front, you know, and you know, they needed somebody that knew everybody that was in on a record label, working at a label on a record label in a band, 
you know, some sort of luminaries, press people. So it was kind of good that it was good for my career because I knew everybody at, you know, labels and publishing places and all the magazines and, you know, because they'd come up to me and rather than stand in line, I'd be like, yeah, come, come in right now, you know. So it was it was a great, great kind of gig to have as I was making music and putting bands together because I got to meet everybody. Yeah. And then you, you get to get your band play at all these clubs. Cause you have all, you know, all the connections. Exactly. So that was kind of how Caesar got its start was I just walked in and said, listen, give me a great slot on the Saturday night. If I don't draw people, never book me again. So right away we were playing great, you know, opening great shows or headlining great nights. And, you know, at, at the time I, you know, I didn't own a car. I was just riding the motorcycle. So that was starting to become a really hot little thing with everybody buying bikes. So I used to just go around and put flyers on everybody's bike and invite everybody down. So I had a built-in crowd from all the motorcycle dudes, you know, right away. And it kind of bit us in the ass later because I was inviting rival outlaw motorcycle clubs to a show and they would be facing off in a parking lot. (laughs) I'd be like, we should hold the show until this kind of calms down. Yeah. So then how did you get signed? Is it some through these same connections or was it? Well, it was, you know, I put, put the band together and then everybody from working the door at club lingerie. So put the group of guys together who, you know, we put the band together, a bunch of kind of working class dudes, not glam guys, you know, cause I just wasn't a makeup kind of guy. And so I was a bluesy, blue-collar guy coming from New York, found other, you know, sort of gritty biker-type dudes to put a band together. And then, like I say, by, you know, getting really good slots on really good shows, you know, there were people in the crowd that saw us. And by the second show, we had Jimmy Ivey wanting to manage us. So it happened really quickly. And then with Jimmy getting aboard, of course, instantly all the labels, you know, because if Jimmy smells money, you know, the labels smell money because he only works with stuff that was doing really well. So it was just a really smart kind of very connected eyeballs on us right away. And, you know, we made sure that we had our, our shit together and, you know, could put on a good show and we're tight and, and had some good original songs. And, you know, we, we just, you know, we didn't have time to mess around because you only get one shot to make a first impression. Right. Everybody in the band was pretty business savvy and show savvy. So, you know, all the planets just kind of aligned really quick. It kind of, that was kind of our downfall because we got so many big people involved. All the egos started battling and we kind of were the one who paid the price for all those fights. But, you know, it was, it was the right way to do it. That's for sure. You know? Yeah. So did you, when you were on the metal blade compilation, was that when you had Jimmy as a manager or was that before Jimmy? Yes. And, okay. and the backstory on that, that was a wholly, totally contrived thing by Geffen. We had signed with Geffen. Oh, and what happened was we, we were meeting with Bob rock. This was before he exploded, you know, with Dr. Feelgood and all that. He was really like engineering the Aerosmith stuff. And okay. He did the cult record and stuff, but he, he wasn't like, you know, Metallica, Dr. Feelgood guy just yet. So we talked to him about doing a really gritty 70s style record. And he was like, I'd love to make a record like that. You know, I've been making all these slickly produced, lots of reverb kind of stuff. Anyway, so 
we had hooked up with Bob and then Bob and John Kaladner got to a fight over John. Yeah. John Kaladner's IANR guy. Mm-hmm. He's that guy from the Aerosmith videos with the big beard and the yeah, long the hair. Beard. Yeah. Aerosmith and ACDC and blue murder. I mean, just tons of people, total character. Um, so him and Bob got into a fight and all of a sudden we didn't have a producer for a while. So Geffen went to Metal Blade and said, hey, why don't we put out some of their demos, songs that we know are not going to be on the record. We'll put it out on Metal Blade, kind of trying to mirror what Guns N' Roses did with their EP, you know, a very street sort of approach, Mm. uh, try to get a street credibility. And it was a total corporate, you know, and Metal Blade really liked us. And the funny thing is, is we, we wish we would have been on Metal Blade because they, they had a better infrastructure together, rock infrastructure. Yeah. And, and, and you know, Brian Slago and, and Mike was working there at the time. And, you know, it was, it was a real small family operation. And, and we really just loved those guys. They, had, they, they were totally connected to the band. And so we put that thing out first while we were waiting to get up into Vancouver and work with Bob Rock once him and John Kaladin kissing made up. So, right. You know, those little, those little corporate little shenanigans. No, there's so many like fuck ups because I've heard you tell these stories. And uh, the biggest thing for me that I never understood as a kid in the '90s was like, okay, why is the band named Little Caesar when there's a pizza chain named Little Caesars? Yeah, and we didn't even know that you didn't pizza. know, but the record no. label did, and they didn't like they didn't think that was a concern. It. They didn't go, oh they shit, we got to change the name. No, they didn't know about that till about six eight weeks before. And then by then everything was printed up. We were like, well, let's just change the name. And they're like, yeah. No, no, no. Then we got to redo all the artwork and get a new logo. And then, and then we're like, well, whatever. And we didn't think, still didn't think it was a big deal. It just said, yeah, there's a national pizza chain. They're not in California and you guys don't know about it, but mm. it's a different thing. Don't worry about it. You know? And we're like, oh, okay, whatever. And then as we got on tour and we were driving around the U.S. and every time we go to this, these little Caesar's pizza, we're like, God damn it. You know, did you ever think of having a partnership with them? Like a commercial together? Uh, actually, one of Geffen's, you know, brilliant ideas when the record was coming out, we were trying to figure out like a good marketing campaign. They're like, well, why don't we put like a discount coupon on everyone <laughs> a little Caesar's pizza? We're like, what does that have to do with anything? I, I mean, uh. Somebody gets a pizza and there's this some unknown band that you can get like $3 off a CD if you go to the record store. What does pizza have to do? Well, pizza, that's really down to earth. And you guys were like, come up with another plan. That's not it's, a very good It's one. so weird because I feel like Geffen's, well, I thought they were one of the better labels to Us be too. on. Us too. Well, what we didn't, what we didn't know because at the time we had literally there was a big bidding war after the band. Now, don't get me wrong, none of the band got big heads about this shit. We knew this was all hype and Jimmy Iovine and all this other stuff. But but that's pretty common for bands that get signed, right? There's usually more than one choice. Yeah, and and the thing is, is that when Jimmy got involved, and you know, at the time, all the labels knew that that all of this sort of corporate glam sort of oriented stuff was gonna fade out it was already starting to drop and something new was going to have to happen which of course a couple of years later it was alternative in seattle so they knew that so when they saw this sort of bluesy you know i had facial hair and was wearing flannel shirts and riding a motorcycle and that was really you know sort of fresh compared to all the guys up on the strip that had teased up hair and makeup and tight clothes and so 
they thought, you know, hey, this band could, you know, they're kind of going back to classic rock blues roots. They could really take off. So we just got a lot of interest from a lot of labels. And so we decided to go with Geffen because of the Guns N' Roses thing. And then we come to Fon because I became friends with Alan Niven, you know, GNR's manager. And he's like, dude, we had to release this record like three times. Geffen didn't get it. I had a fight with them to release, you know, Appetite like three times. And then when the single came out and then when we finally started getting rotation at radio and MTV and we went up to like 300,000 units, they thought that was good enough. And I was like, no, this is a platinum record. And they're like, no, 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 no. I, I just let it ride, let it ride. And Alan just kept pushing them. And sure enough, man, it became, you know, the explosion that it became. But it wasn't because of Geffen's insight. And then when we signed with Geffen and we found out that they had 228 bands on the label that you'd never heard of. And we're like, and when they, when six weeks after we released our record and David sold the, it was actually three weeks after we released our record and David sold the label. That's when all of this stuff started coming out because the Japanese said, well, we need somebody to come in and, you know, clean house and get rid of all of these bands that are just were given advances to and demo money to, and none of them are making albums that we released. We got our, so they hired this guy, Robert Smith, this marketing guy to come in and just cut everyone's budget and drop these bands like stones. And one of the famous stories was um, there was this band called the Nymphs, this girl, Inga Lori. And she, Tom, um, uh, was it, was it Tom Zutow signed her? Mm. Um, GNR's guy, you know, and they kept wanting to get into the studio and start a record. And Tom just was so busy with all these other bands. Finally, Inga got so pissed, she went into his office and she jumped on his desk. She was wearing a little skirt at the time. She dropped her fucking panties and pissed all over his family photos and his ink blotter. And she was like total punk rock. She was wow. like, fuck, fuck this label. And she, it was like this famous story going around. But sure enough, they got dropped, you know. So all of these bands got dropped. And, and you know, it was, we didn't know this at the time, but Geffen was really band heavy. And there was a lot of bands that were getting no attention. Sorry if my dogs are barking, but I, I can't, you know, ranch life. Oh, okay, not. yeah. Um, no, because wasn't there also the, some a label, the manager, he gets fired for masturbating on the secretary's yeah, desk while he was high on ecstasy. Three, three weeks after the record comes out, um, not only does um, not only does the label get sold, and all of a sudden we find out, well, you're on MTV, you're in heavy rotation. We're like, well, what's our sales? And they're like, well, we don't really know because there's not really a lot of records in the stores right now because once we sold the label. We're we're working now with with um, BMG, so Warner was your distributor. So we got to figure out how to get all your records from Warner's warehouses to BMG's warehouses, and then get them back out to the stores. And we're like, yeah, but we're on MTV. How are people buying our record? Oh well, it'll create a mystique. And we're like, that's the lamest excuse we've ever heard. So that was three weeks into it, and then about a week after that is when. The label manager, who we didn't know was a fond of doing like coke and ecstasy, was totally high one day and walked out into his secretary's office. This is public knowledge. 
and with a raging heart on and shot a load on her desk, thought it would be funny. She scooped up his semen, sued the label, got a $2 million buyout. He got fired. He got a $2 million buyout. And we had nobody running the label. Wow. So that, was, that was a week after there was no records in the stores. Um, and then a week after that, Jimmy Iveen had announced that he was starting Interscope Records. And David Geffen went to him and asked if, well, let me handle all your distribution. Let me handle it. I'd like to work with you. And David was like, nah. Uh, uh, Jimmy was like, nah, I'm, I don't want to bring Interscope under, under Geffen. So, you know, David Geffen was really pissed at Jimmy. And he took it out on Little Caesar. He's like, fuck you. Fuck your bands. Oh. You know. And then he made us fire Jimmy Ivey because in the state of California, you can't be a record label and a manager at the same time. That's against the law. Oh. So now he started Interscope and he was the CEO. David was like, you got to fire Jimmy Ivey. He's now a record label and you can't be, you can't have a manager who's also a record label because that's just against the law. So we had to fire him and we went with Herbie Herbert. So this is, this is the story of our career. <laughs> But it's too bad because that first, re- I mean, really, all your records are good, but especially that first record, it really was a good album. Like, Yeah, there was some, a lot of good songs on it. You know, they let us finish, they, they finished out our contract. We did the second record. We worked, uh, we co-produced with Howard Benson. But at that point, we were so bitter and angry. The songs are good, but you can just listen to that and tell we're pissed off. The lyrics are pissed off. My vocal let me's pissed off. You know, at this point, we were so dejected and angry and puppets of the whole corporate machinery. Um, our original guitar player had quit right after all of this night. You know, we were all slick in, and he was kind of in a cranky space at that point. We were all just cranky, you know? Well, yeah, because I was going to say, Earl Slick, I mean, how did you get him? Because he, he's a legend. I mean, he's David Bowie's yeah, guitar we're player. Just friends with him. And, oh, okay. You know, we, we knew him. And, you know, again, it's... At the time, the music that was really big, this was just as Seattle's was exploding. You know, all of a sudden, Chris Cornell shows up on MTV with the goatee and the flannel shirt, and I'm like, I'm fucked. You know, talking, oh, the guy's got my whole look. Because I used to get all this shit from the label and Gene Simmons, all these people. What's with the facial hair you guys? What is this, 1977? You know, 1972? We're like, it's just our look, dude. We're kind of biker dudes. Why do we have to look all pretty? And why can't we have goatees and shit? Nobody had them. Yeah. So, you know, so at the time when, when we talked to Slick, he was like, listen, man, I can't find a good blues-based, soul-based band. I'd love to play with you guys. And we're like, well... The first record was a nightmare, and I don't know if they're even going to get behind the second record because right now there's so much bad blood in the press and with Jimmy and David, and and we spent so much money that they couldn't recoup, and now they got this guy at the label whose job is just to say no, no tour support, no video money. Japanese were making them cut everybody's budget. So we were like, well, what are we going to do? And at this point, we just heard from our lawyer and, and our new manager that, David Geffen just wanted the band to disappear and go away. It was just nothing but a bad taste in his mouth. And, you know, when I, when, I, when our option was up, we were like, well, you know, what are we going to do? Their second record's just about to come out. Are they going to pick us up? And we had a meeting up there, and it was the president, this guy, Eddie Rosenblatt, uh, one of Jimmy Ivins. You know, Jimmy wouldn't come to the meeting because it was such bad blood right then. So his day-to-day guy, this guy, Tony Ferguson, came. And so we're sitting in this big office, and David Geffen just walks in and goes, listen, dudes, 
you know, you've been talking shit about me in the press about the sale of the label and how I messed you guys up and Jimmy Iovine and all this stuff. I, I just want you guys to go away, but I can't let you go to like, you know, Epic or Electra or Columbia or Atlantic. And if you guys hit, then my my label looks bad because I had this band that did nothing on their first and second records. And then all of a sudden you explode everything you've been saying in the press about this behind the scenes business stuff's going to, I'm going to look like, you know, an idiot. So I'm going to hold me, told me, I'm going to hold you to your contract. We'll let the other guys go. And I don't know, five, six years from now, if you guys want to reform, knock yourself out. But I collect artists like I collect artwork. And I'll put you on the shelf like I did Don Henley, like I did Neil Young. You know, look at their career. Neil Young didn't do a record for like 10 years and Don Henley was going for eight years. We had we had bad blood going and I always win. That's just the way it is. So anyway, best of luck in your career. Get up, walk out. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, I'm screwed. The band is screwed. And that's why we broke up. It was just the writing was on the wall. We had to go away. And sure enough, seven years later, we put it back together. And this time, you know. We promised this time it's not going to be out money and fame and corporations where, you know, the internet was just starting up and you could put out your own records and stay connected to the bands on Friendster. And <laughs> you know, so yeah. We were like, yeah, let's just do it purely for the music and let's not try to make a living doing this, man, because once you start making it a business, it just gets messy and it gets, you know, so we, we all had outside gigs going on. I was running a nightclub in LA and Fidel was running a nice high-end body shop and hot rod restoration place. And we were like, okay, well, let's just, we all have gigs that we can carve out enough time to go on tours and get in the studio. And, and that's what we did. You know, Lauren, uh, one of the other founders, he, you know, he's um, Black Star Amps, US rep, mm. artist rep. So, you know, we all had gigs where we were around music or around cars or around something, but we all could, you know, make enough time for our music. Yeah. Great Ali, great Ali picture behind you back there. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Well, he, he's a legend. You have a far, fine representative collection up there. Of thank what you. What are all about. Yeah. So, I mean, speaking <laughs> of legends, though, like, so you guys toured with Kiss and, and well, also, also, also Slaughter, which is also a great band. But I thought yeah. that was cool that Gene Simmons... Because sometimes it's, I hear stories where the, t the bands tour and you don't even see the headliners, but Gene Simmons would critique your shows like every night and tell oh, you yeah. well, what to do and stuff. Gene, like Gene is the consummate businessman. Yeah. He's never done a drug. He's never drank. He's never smoked a cigarette. And so business is everything to him. He goes, business to me, that's a vacation. He was live at the time. He was Liza Minnelli's business manager back, back in 1990. I didn't know that. So yeah, so he's really—I mean, you know—he's Gene Simmons. So he loves the business side. Of it. So you know, when we got out there, the first bunch of nights, he was up there watching every one of our shows, and after the show, coming in and imitating us, and you shouldn't do this, and you need to—you—you you, you can tell you guys have been playing in clubs. You got to be slower and more dramatic, and you got to start working with a mic stand, and really, really good really good input but huh. then again he was like you know you guys got to stop writing songs about how you hate your job and you have no money girl you know guys want to sing about fucking and pussy and 
you know, and hot girls. And we're like, dude, that's been done to death. That's not really what we're about. We're a bunch of working class guys, you know? So, but he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. and he goes, what's with the goatees and the facial hair? Jesus Christ. People want to see something larger than life. And you guys look like you're fucking roadies, you know? <laughs> get some nice clothes and shave that shit, you know? And, but didn't he like, get a grow a goatee later? And you saw yes, it? Yes, about, about a year later, dude, when at this point, the whole grunge thing from Seattle was undeniable. Yeah. Everybody was sporting facial hair. And all of a sudden, Gene, I bump into Gene Simmons at some music convention. He's got a goatee and a flannel shirt. And I'm like, fuck you, dude. He's like, well, you know, funny. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And then didn't your, tell me, tell uh, my audience this story about how uh, your label wanted you to be more glam. So you guys took these glammy pictures oh, and yeah, then I still have some of those. Yeah. We did this photo shoot at, there's a restaurant, a chain restaurant called the old spaghetti factory. I don't know. If yeah, yeah. 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 And inside it's all like velvet curtains and lush couches, you know, like turn of the century kind of look. And we were like, okay, listen, Let's let's go in an old spaghetti factory in the afternoon on a, you know on a Monday when they're closed, and we shaved and put on these polka dotted shirts and with little frills and all this shit, and you know so we did this photo shoot and it was funny because I went over to immediately started growing the goatee back when we saw the pictures I was like dude we we look so indistinguishable we look really. We're not pretty, you know, we, we look like we're trying too hard. This isn't even natural. So the photos were sitting on Jimmy Ivey's desk. And at the time he was working with John Bon Jovi. Yeah. Um, he was doing, John was singing a very special Christmas album that he does. Jimmy would do for Special Olympics every year. And he'd bring in all these artists. And actually Jimmy had me sing the guide vocal. It was like this old R&B Christmas tune. And he had me sing the guide vocal and I had John kind of copy it. Hmm. Because John was like, I'm really busy. He's like, dude, I'll get this guy Ron to sing it. You come in, give it a listen. This is, I'll work with Ron to get it. We're kind of in the neighborhood I want it. Then you come in, give it a listen, and then it's real. So um, I did that. And John came down to cut the vocal. He's in Jimmy's office, and he sees these photos. And and I wasn't there at the time. He's like, you got that guy Ron's phone number? And I'm like, Jimmy's like, yeah. He's like, give me his number. So my phone rings. It's like 10 in the morning and I, hello, uh, Ron. Yeah. John Bon Jovi. I'm like, get the <laughs> fuck out. He's like, no, John Bon Jovi. Wow. I'm like, John, he did this big, big fan of the band. And, you know, I'm working with Jimmy here and I see these photos and he goes, fuck that shit, dude. Grow your fucking goatee. You just be you. Don't listen to these corporate assholes. And then it was really supportive and really cool. He's such a super nice guy. And, you know, so then are you like, hey, uh, since, there's a, since there's a guy you on the phone, do you mind uh, if our band opens for Bon Jovi on the next tour? Yeah, exactly. Wouldn't that, well, that's how Jimmy Jimmy got us on the KISS tour. Okay. Jimmy was working with Gene Simmons, and Gene goes, ah, dude. Because it really, at the time, KISS was kind of struggling. You know? Sure. Kiss, you know, this was all the, you know, it wasn't, it was more of the younger, glamier, pretty bands going. Kiss was a legacy band at this point. Took off the makeup and, and just they just kind of lost Kiss for a mm-hmm. while. And so, you know, Gene is smart. He at the time it was you know Kiss, Winger, and Slaughter, and and Faster Pussycat was on there for a little while. Mm. And really, the 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 bands putting the bodies and the asses in the seats were were Winger and Slaughter. 
you know, all the young girls who wanted to see it, you know. So when Winger got called back in because the label didn't hear a strong enough single, wanted him to go back in and work on a couple more songs, Winger dropped off, Slaughter moved up a slot, and Jimmy was like, well, I'll put my band on the fucking mill, dude. Let them open for a while. So when we got out there, Winger went in and they had some great song, knocked it right out. They were like, label was happy. They wanted to come back out on tour. And Gene was like, so once it was just Slaughter, the, the ticket sales started dropping and Kiss started canceling some shows for lack of ticket sales. So Gene had to get us off that tour and get Winger back on. So, you know, again, this is pre-internet days. So Gene is calling back to, to you know, L.A. and Jimmy. And he's going, oh, your band ain't going over too good. I got to drop you off the bill and get Winger back out. He wasn't, he would never admit that it was because ticket sales were weak with Kiss. So, you know, so he, one of the greatest lines I've ever heard, he calls it Jimmy, he goes, they're going over like pork chops at a bar mitzvah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Which I thought was great. That's perfect. But meanwhile, you know, the local newspapers were writing reviews of the of us and giving us like the best review of the night saying there's a real rock band, a classic rock band and kiss should learn something from the, you know, really nice complimentary stuff. Nothing like what Gene was telling Jimmy. What didn't Gene, so, didn't they cancel shows if the ticket sales were low and then yes. they would, they would make up a story that Paul was in a car accident. It was in a car accident. <laughs> and then Paul got it actually got into a car accident and his feelings were all offended and hurt. Because Gene and thought Gene it was just a, a ruse again. Gene didn't come to the hospital or call him because he thought it was just another one of those tickets. And there was, there was a great confrontation down by the tour buses when we took a few days off after the canceled shows and you know, Gene's limo pulls in and he's talking with us and then Paul's limo pulls in and Paul walked right by him all offended. Gene's like, what? What, what did I do? Why are you pissed off at me? He's like, I'm in the hospital. You don't call. You don't send flowers. You don't have a phone call. He's like, you were really in a car? Like, yeah, that was just the, why we canceled the show. That's our, you know, how am I supposed to know? He's like, well, you would know if you were to call, you know. And I was like, wow, they're like an old married couple. It's yeah, great, you know? probably worse now, too. <laughs> yeah, probably. So, yeah, so, you know, as soon as Gene could get us off that tour, we were out for like six weeks and, and you know, dropped us off the tour. I think he brought Winger back. But, mm. um, you know, it's but again, man, it's it's just business. You know, you know Gene is, uh, you know, Gene used to say, man, this is, you guys are so focused on the music and you really got to get your stage show together. You got to get some great lighting and great pyro and all this stuff. Because a great show is when the pyro goes off on time. It's not about whether you play good. Nobody, nobody, it's so loud. Nobody's going to hear that crap anyway. Huh. And he, he was also at the time using backing, you know, backing instrumentation. He had my buddy Gary Corbett, rest in peace, was doubling all of Paul's guitar parts on a synthesizer off stage. And hitting vocal triggers for all the big background vocals. So the vocals sounded great every night. And, you know, Gene would never admit that, but he was ahead of his time then, you know, because so many bands rely on that now. But Gene would never admit that kind of thing. No. What about, did you do shows with Leonard Skinner and Junkyard? That sounds like we more did. a, a better did. fit for your band. I did two shows with them. One of them was down here in L.A. at um, what's now Glen Helen. It was called Irvine Meadows at the time. 
And that was that was just great, man. What a great triple bill that was. You know, there was probably like 20 something thousand people there. And we, you know, Junkyard came out about a, eight months, almost a year before us. It was us, and then Junkyard, and then and then Skinner. And uh I just remember at the time Artemis Pyle, the drummer, who was he's kind of wacky, you know. Um he had gotten really drunk and was climbing the scaffolding. And, and everybody, all the Skinner's crew and the band were trying to coax him down. And he, he was—he climbed up there with some bottle or something in his belt and just kind of hung out up there and was watching the show. <laughs> it was kind of crazy. That is crazy. Did, now, you were, were you friends with Junkyard and some of these other uh, Sunset oh, yeah. Strip bands? We, really, we still go out tour with Junkyard. Those guys, man, you know, very, again, like-minded, down-to-earth you know, real blue collar and, you know, cause in LA there was really two, like three different scenes going on, but in the rock scene, there was the East side of Hollywood, which was all of the sleazy, grungy, gritty down to earth bands. And then, then there was all the pretty high dollar glamorous kind of shit going up on the sunset strip. So there was a whole set of clubs in LA, like uh, music machine and Raji's and, and the scream and um you know just more just stinky dive bars you know that bands came up out of and us and junkyard rhino bucket lethal weapon and even even guns and roses early on you know they they were playing all of those sleazy grungy places and then started playing up on the strip and went to a little bit more of a glam look axel had his poofed up hair for a while right then they just said fuck it just you know decided to strip it back down and just be who they were and they look a lot better and came across a lot better than their early glam sort of right absolutely so explain this to me um you have that album this time it's different is that so it says 2013 but then wikipedia says 98 when when was that one made that really came out in in 98 Okay. It, um, it wasn't, we, I re-released it on our own little label, ah. our own little records. And that was just demos, outtakes. Like there's a song on the first record called Down to Dirty. So you, yeah, you that, wrote that with the Randy Bachman from yeah, Bachman and Overdrive. And uh, the, original, the original title was Down and Dirty. And John Colada didn't like that. Oh. And he suggested, so we did a version called Downtown Mama. Instead of Down and Dirty, it was Downtown Mama. Hmm. And I was like, it just sounds so hokey, you know? And, yeah. And But we cut it, and we had it, you know, you know, we had it recorded. And so we did, well, let's put it out. And, uh, and just a bunch of, you know, just outtakes and demo stuff. So we just released that. We kind of dug into the junk drawer and put together all this unreleased stuff. Okay, that's cool. And then the Redemption, um, now that one was just recently re-released. Is It's a yes. d- deluxe edition. What's the difference on that one? The deluxe edition is that um, remastered and we have some concurrent live tracks to a bunch of the tracks on the record. Okay. So... Um, we had done like a double live album. We took some of those tracks and from the songs of redemption, took the, the matching live tracks and put it on there. So that's the deluxe. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. I love the first song, same old story. I mean, it just starts out, 
it's almost like just pretty much a strict blues rock song. And then that yeah, it just kind of like continues throughout the album. Yeah. Chuck Berry, like 12 bar boogie kind of pumping, you know, honky talky kind of thing, you know, straight ahead rock, classic rock. Band. Yeah. And then I love in the, in the album eight, the, the song Vegas, it's so catchy. And I love that lyric too stupid for New York, too ugly too for ugly Hollywood. For Hollywood. Yeah. That's great. Is that, is that what they said about your band? And that's pretty much, yeah. It, it was me pointing out it's kind of about the whole selfie generation where people ah. are trying to be influencers now. And they have no, you know, like these Instagram models. As soon as Instagram goes down, they have no career. They're not models, you know. Right. And there's this whole chunk of people who – they're trying to be influencers and all they do is post half naked pictures or content. that's like kind of lame and they're not really smart enough to cut it in the big city of New York. And they're not hot enough to come to Hollywood and be a model or an actress. So they just kind of live on the internet. You know? <laughs> that's a good point. There's a lot of people in that. Yeah. That's their existence. And quite honestly, it's so diluted and overwhelming that nobody gets to become famous anymore because everyone is clamoring for eyeballs, you know, and, and followers. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's the great thing about the internet, especially for bands where if we don't want to go the corporate route and the corporate route's kind of dead is, you know, you get to put out your own music and you have direct access to the fans, which I absolutely love. Right. And on the other side, every single band on earth has the same tools to their availability. So it's kind of hard to get your message out, get your music out, and get your followers out. You well, and it's confusing too, because sometimes you'll see this band and they'll have like a hundred thousand followers and you're like, oh wow, this band must be really good. And then you'll look at their posts and it'll have like three likes on a post and i'm yes. like well that's the thing see that's what we learned it's about engagement see here's a little yeah. behind the scenes data information it's about engagement the problem was is that for years you could spend 15 bucks and get fifty thousand followers through an app sure not real followers right so all the people in the know stop looking at how many followers and they look at each post and they see how many people are engaged exactly yeah so you know, well, like, I think the algorithm changes it too. The algorithm changes it too now with Facebook. Like you may have, I mean, I think I have close to 2000 followers and they're all legit, but like they don't see half my posts. Oh. It'll tell you like how many well, people saw the post. Bill Zuckerberg decided that he had to start making money. So right. the algorithm, the monetizing, it used to be very socialist and now it's very capitalist, <laughs> you know, and it's, if you don't pay for ads, you don't let people see it, you know? Right. So, well, there's also so much competition because now people there, like there so many different pages. pages. You know, and again, this so, comes back to engagement because you'll see, you'll watch a post start to pick up speed because yeah. you post something and, and say you, you start to have 20 engagements. Then all of a sudden it goes up to 100 engagements and it's 300 engagements because the algorithm goes, oh, people like this. Right. People are engaging with this. It's to our in our best interest to let more people see it because it's obviously a, a piece of content that people find worth engaging with. And that's all they care about is engagement. So, and then they'll shove the ad. Hey, you want to boost this and get like 6,000 followers to see it? And it's like, all it costs is 85 bucks. <laughs> like, man, that's, this is everything we hate about, you know, 
I thought this was supposed to be social media. Not anymore. Yeah. Monetization. It's different for sure. Well, so besides little Caesar, you had a couple other, you've had, we've had a lot of actually other music projects, but there was two big ones that like didn't really happen, but almost did. So the first one was, if you're talking to me, you don't even have to say it didn't really happen. No, but like you actually, well, you were actually in little Caesar. You were actually, you know, you were actually in manic Eden. You were actually in the four horsemen, but slash, tell me the story with that. Cause you almost came this close to being in Slash's snake pit. Well, basically slash had gone through the quick backstory. Slash went through about a hundred guys in LA and I didn't even know about it. And one day the phone rings and it's Mike Klink, his producer. How does he get your number? How do these people get these? Well, you know, back then there was no cell phones. This is landlines. So yeah. He called down to Jimmy Ivey's office. Okay. And he gave him my phone number. So my phone rings. And, you know, that's back in the day. You pick up your phone and you just go, hello. You didn't have caller ID. There's right. No such thing any of it. So he's like, hi, this is Mike Kling. I'm like, how are you, Mike? How you doing? Oh, good, good, good. So listen, I'm, I'm producing this. Slash has decided he can't wait for to get back together with Axel anymore. He's decided to move on with his career. He's doing this thing called Snake Pit. We've gone through 100 singers, and none of the guys give him what he wants and what he's looking for. Would you be up for meeting with him? And I'm like, of course, man. Because the thing was, is I met with Slash in 1986. We met at Cantor's Deli. And I played him some stuff. He loved my vocals, but he said my hair wasn't long enough <laughs> to be in a band with him. It was only like down, you know, down to like my, you know, my neck. And he wanted it longer. He had a whole thing about the look. Interesting. You know, back then, that was really, it was really important. Right. So, you know, anyway, so fast forward, I, I, you know, I, I, he gives me Slash's number. I call him. He's like, well, listen, dude, this is the way that I'm doing the audition. I'm going to bring you up to my house and I'm going to play you some stuff and you're going to write melodies and lyrics right on the spot and you're going to sing them. Can you do that? I'm like, yeah, sure, dude. I'll wing it. So I go up there and I just kind of threw out some ideas on like five or six ideas. He's like, dude, this is really great. I love the sound of your voice. I love the melodies and everything you're doing with this stuff. Well, we'll dial this stuff in a little later, but now I know I got somebody I can really work with. So I'm like, okay, great. Let's go for it. So I take like a week or two and just come up with a few more words and, you know, so on. And we go in the studio and and it's, you know, Mike Inez and him and Mike Clink and we start putting vocals down and I can see that they're talking in the control room. Next thing I know, they're like, um, you know, let's take lunch. Then I come back from lunch and everybody's gone, you know? So I get home that night and I get a phone call from, from Mike Clink. And he's like, dude, um, you're going with this guy, singer from jellyfish. I forget his name. Eric Dover. Like, I thought it was going great. He goes, well, what these guys mentioned to him was, you don't sound anything like Axel, and you can't sing like Axel. And when he goes out to do this new record, he's going to have to play everything from Appetite and, you know, use your illusion, because the fans are going to want to hear those songs. And so he's decided to go with a guy that can really kind of get closer to Axel's sound, and that's what happened. Mm-hmm. And it so, boom, that was done and over with. I bumped into Slash about three or four years later. And he was like, dude, I'm really sorry. And, you know, that wasn't, you know, I didn't handle that too well. And this is, I think, when he was getting sober. He's like, you know, um, 
And I was like, dude, that's that's all good. From a business perspective, I totally understand. But to be quite honest, I don't sing like Axel. I don't want to try to sing like Axel. Um, you know, that's that sort of Brian Johnson. You know, and that just doesn't kind of float my boat, you know. So that was why he went with that. But I, the music wasn't really ready. You know, they just definitely was pressuring him to get something out. And, you know, the record didn't explode, but super nice guy. I mean, he's just so, so fucking talented. Yeah. Really down to earth and really, really nice guy. And so that was my almost working with Flash story. That's know? pretty cool story, though. Either way, do you have copies of the stuff you guys made together? I didn't because it was all just done in his studio. He never gave me any copies. I okay. just went into the full blown studio and got half a day's worth of work. Mm. I never got a copy of. Okay. So, so there's that, that story with slash. And then the other big one was red hot chili peppers, which yeah. I did not know about until I listened to an interview with you and my jaws just dropping. Um, I got a phone call, I guess from flea. I think it was. And he's like, listen, man, you know, Anthony, he can't get his act together. He keeps getting, you know, doing heroin and we've kicked him out of the band and he's in rehab, but it's too much bad blood. And uh, we just want to listen, you know, he's, Anthony's not technically a good singer at all. He's basically tone deaf. And that's why he would rap so much and he's worked and worked and worked and he's gotten better at it, but he's, that's not really his thing technically. And at the time, Flea wanted to do more R&B and funk-based stuff with melody because everything was more <laughs> rapping kind of stuff. So he's like, I want to take this opportunity to expand the horizons musically in the band. So I went in and was rehearsing with them for weeks. And, you know, it was funny because I go down there and Flea is a couple of things. And one thing he said, something that I'll never, ever forget. He just said, listen, dude, when we rehearse we give 110%. We don't just, we play every note like it's the last note we were ever play. And that includes rehearsals. Are you okay with that? I'm like, totally. And I really, really respected that. And then he, then his next question was, are you comfortable just wearing a sock on stage? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, fuck it. You know? Socks on our cocks. Wasn't that the yeah, name of that? Exactly. Yeah. You know? So it was just a wonderful experience. And I had written, Almost the whole album. I think it was the Uplift Moco Party Plan. Yeah. And so I why didn't you get a songwriting credit for that? Uh, because they changed everything that I did. And Anthony came uh, back in and rewrote it. So okay. We were working with Michael Beinhorn. We kind of went into Capitol. We were rehearsing the Capitol. We did some demos. And I did have a cassette of all of that record demoed with me doing singing. And my wife, when me and my wife got divorced, she threw out so much stuff and all of that got thrown out. So oh. a divorce, you know, fire that, that, so, but yeah, I did that the same thing. We started working in the studio. Anthony had gotten out of rehab. He sat there with the band. He humbly apologized. He promised he would get his shit together. And you know what? Best and smartest decision they ever made. Cause I mean, chili peppers is sure. that just Anthony and flea. They've been fucking childhood friends and same thing. Uh, Flea handled it really well. You know, he called me up. He's like, dude, he's my bro. And I'm like, dude, you don't, you don't have to explain loyalty to me. You know, and this is a great opportunity that I'm going to lose out on. But from the understanding why you're doing what you're doing, totally respect it. And, and it's all good, brother. You know, you, we're nothing but a gentleman. And, and 
handled yourself professionally and I have no regrets. Yeah. Great to work with you. And if it doesn't work out, call me again. There you go. Yeah. Well, sure enough, it worked out. In fact, at the time, this was Hillel. Hillel had more of them overdosing and died oh. thereafter. So, you know, they had the demons within the band. And, you know, Anthony's been sober now for years and years and years. God bless him. You know, it's great, you know, that he didn't keep going down that path that he would have wound up like Hillel. And the band is the band. So that was my almost getting this close to greatness again. <laughs> well, yeah, but then, so with Manic Eden, you guys did put out a record, right? That yeah. was with Adrian Vanderberg, Rudy Sarzo, who I've had on the show, and Tommy, then uh, Tommy, Tommy Aldridge. Aldridge. Yeah, it was That's Whitesnake a great... Me in front of it. What's that? You know, it was like Whitesnake, you know, with me fronting the band. And the way that came about was they they decided that with, with grunge and everything, it opened up a lot of avenues that they could make music that they could branch out, not hmm. have to do this sort of highly produced glam sort of kind of music and do a progressive blues kind of record. And Adrian at the time was really into Stevie Ray Vaughan and Jimi Hendrix, and he wanted to be able to express himself more in that vein musically in songwriting and play. So they started working with James Christian from House of Lords. James wasn't really bluesy enough for them. So they called me in. Uh, we rehearsed a couple times. Everybody was digging it. I finished off about half the songs, needed melodies and lyrics. We're third. We went in, we knocked out the record, you know, and it was just a real honest record. And, you know, Adrian, who's very smart about business, all again, all super, super nice guys, man. So talented and just the nicest guys you'd ever meet. And we did the record initially for JBC in Japan and Asian was smart and held on to the distribution rights for the rest of the world thinking, okay, Japanese paid for the record. So we start shopping the record to labels and nobody would even meet with Adrian. Hmm. And they're like, Oh no, 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 we don't want to put out that music is dead. You know, what year that, was this? This was 94. Okay. So at this point, all of the big bands were knocking back. They weren't really playing arenas anymore. They were playing smaller venues. It was all Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, Creed. Uh, you know, uh, it was all alternative stuff. And at this point, you know, the great visionaries at corporate music were like, yeah, we can't, we don't feel comfortable just trying to put out another 80s metal, you know. And we're like, listen to it. It's nothing like that. And they wouldn't even listen to it. They were just summarily dismissing. And we were like, and, and the most insulting thing was we met with one, one guy would meet with us. And again, um, he was like, listen, um, we want to downplay Adrian and Rudy and Tommy. And this guy, Ron Young, you know, he's got the goatee and he's got great critical credibility hmm. and He's he's much closer to that sort of grungy alternative thing. So we're going to kind of stick him out front. And I'm like, these guys here have sold tens of millions of records. I've sold eight. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like it was so insulting and to kind of be so short sighted. And it was really it was pushing water uphill. And Mm. those guys, you know, they were adults at this point they had houses and you know they they had to generate revenue me i was still living in a shithole in hollywood i could wait out anything and and be patient and try to make it work 
but they had to get back to working. And mm. so they went back to, I think David, um, David called, Adrian went back to work with him and Tommy went back out with, um, I think him and Rudy went at the time or, I don't know, was it Quiet Right? I can't remember. Yeah, they all got, yeah, they've been do- yeah. doing tons of great stuff. They, so. they have to get back to life. Yeah. And, you know, and so again, I totally respect and appreciate and understand that. So it was a short lived thing. Now that's getting re released shortly here, or maybe it already has. I think it's on Spotify. Yeah. Uh, well, it's on Spotify, and some label was doing a re release. Okay. Very cool. And so a quick funny story. When I've got this other project called Crusados that I'll tell you about. Yeah. But, a bluesy rock uh, band stuff. With the, it's got well, the drummer from. Rootsy, it's, it was a band from the early 80s. Yeah. We were all fans of and friends of. And uh, the bass player resurrected that, wanted to do, because two of the guys passed away. Charlie Quintana, who played with Social Distortion, and a whole bunch of people. And Marshall Rohner, um, you know. So Tony wanted to resurrect this thing. And so we did, we did that and just did a record. And we're just starting to get behind that push it. We're going to start doing some touring on that. But anyway, I was over with Little Caesar, and we had a press day to do in Paris. We got there. More, a festival got canceled. We had some downtime for a few days. And the promoter for the show in Paris was like, we'd love to get some press done. So when you play Paris at the end of the tour, there's, some, there's a good turnout. So we go down to this little rock bar down in the Bastille section of Paris. And there's this, this guy, Olivier Garnier, who's just this huge, the biggest publicist in Paris, I mean, in France, that put this whole day together. And so, you know, he had worked the Manic Eden record. He took us all around mm. France to do a promotional tour. And I haven't seen him in 27 years. So, you know, hugs, 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 has your wife, you get all caught up. And then we, middle of the day, we go to have lunch. And he's like, do you remember when you yelled at me from stage? And I'm like, no. He goes, yeah, we were doing this acoustic show at this big record store. And there was a couple hundred people there. And he goes, I was talking business in the back of the room. And in between songs, you heard me and you called me out from the stage and yelled at me. And I was so embarrassed. I've never, ever said another word at, 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 a, at a, like a show or a signing or an acoustic thing ever again. I felt terrible. And I'm Aww. like, now the funny thing is, is, the funny thing, but at that time on that press tour, I was, this is when I was stuck being a heroin addict. So I'm over there in Paris, totally dope sick. I'm like trying to not shit my pants and I'm chilled and then I'm sweating. And I was just sick as a dog from detox and from heroin. And I was in a foul mood that day. And so unlike myself, I I never call out anybody from a live microphone, not a sound guy or a monitor guy or anybody. That's just rude and unprofessional. I should quietly go off stage or ask somebody to go back there and quietly tell them to please keep it down. And sure enough, man, I, I owed him a huge apology because he, of all the things he remembers for 27 years of not seeing each other or working together, that asshole moment of me calling him out you know and so i really appreciated him telling me just what a miserable prick i was <laughs> at that time when i was all sick dope sick from detoxing from heroin so that's crazy 
Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and then besides all the music stuff, we got to talk a little bit about your, your brief acting career. I mean, we got oh, it. Yeah. You got to tell, day. tell my audience the story of, you know, you're the, you're the biker from Terminator two that you take the pool stick and you hit the Terminator and then the you get head. thrown out the window. Yep. Throws me through the plate glass window. The way that came about was back in the eighties. I became friends with this woman, Catherine Bigelow, the director. We did Hurt Locker. Yeah. James Cameron's yeah. wife at the time. Exactly. So at the time. So I had done some music for her first feature film. It wound up not even making it to the movie. It was Willem Dafoe's first movie. And I, oh. we, the band I was in wrote a bunch of songs that was going to be in the soundtrack. Then they wound up going with like an oldie soundtrack, like, like old 50s. It was a 50s period piece. Oh. They decided it would be better if they used original music from the 50s, not new. So I was like, yeah, whatever. You know, we went in the studio, did a bunch of songs, got paid for it, but became friends with Catherine. And we stayed friends. We moved out to L.A. She moved out to L.A. We kept the friendship going. And, you know, my wife rode horses with her because she was big into horses. And I get this phone call one day, you know, from Catherine going, um, I want you to have a meeting with, with my husband, you know, Jim. And I'm like, Okay, Jim Cameron, James Cameron, yeah. I was like, yeah, of course. Because so But weren't you supposed to be in point break, the movie that she directed? I, I was. So Actually, you're supposed to have the uh the Anthony, Anthony Kiedis role. Which I is ironic, yeah. Anthony um for that part, because we were on tour with Kiss at the time. Right. And that's actually when we did the Arsenio Hall show. It was right when I was thinking of, okay, well, maybe we can get this shot for the couple of days. And like, no, we got to send you right back out with Kiss. So I couldn't do that. But so Jim was like, well, I want to, you know, so we started to hang out and become friends and all this stuff. And Jim was like, I have a whole, whole new concept. I've got this one perfect part for you that I want to stick you in the movie. Because the thing about Jim is, Everyone hates working with Jim. He's a tyrant and he's a perfectionist. And people used to walk around on the Terminator 2 set with a shirt that said T3, not with me. That's how. Wow. I've got some great stories about that. But anyway, so he calls me up and he's like, dude, I want to stick you in the movie. We can hang out. Tells me what he's going to do. He's like, do you know any tattoo artists that can paint tattoos onto a stunt guy? Because like you legally, because of the union, can't go through the window. He goes, but you're going to hit on Schwarzenegger over the head with a pool cue, and he's going to throw your plate plastic plate glass window. We'll throw you into this big air pillow, a stunt guy, and then go through the glass, and then we'll stick you back on the out on the car hood, you know. So we go down there, and at this point, you know, Schwarzenegger was huge, you know. This is now he had this huge career, so he's walking around and like in his underwear and smoking a cigar, <laughs> you know. And oh yeah, so what? Because he's naked in the movie. So what do they wear? They just wear like whitey, tighty yeah, whiteies or something. Wearing, yeah, he's just okay. wearing like flesh-colored, you know, like bicycle short kind of thing. Oh, okay, with a robe and slippers, you know, smoking his cigar and you know. So yeah, go down there, and you know, the weird thing was that night it went really late to like three thirty in the morning because that's the night of the Rodney King beat, and that was happening a block away. Oh shit. You're shooting in this little country bar up in up in Pacoima. And a couple of blocks away was the the Rodney King thing was going on. And Jim was getting really angry because he kept having to redo the shot because sirens were going by and the mics were picking it up. So 
every film in LA has got retired motorcycle cops that do security. So they're listening to all the radio chatter. And they're like, there's something really big going on up the street. They almost thought about leaving the set and going up there and helping because they were calling. I mean, there was like 40 cars up there. Was this during the riot then? or No, this was when the night he got beat. Oh, that was okay. When that okay. Him over yeah, and yeah. Him, okay, right, right, yeah. So that was actually that required a lot of cops to go up there. And, That's right. Okay, so, wow. So that went to like three in the morning until it finally got cleared up. We could finish shooting. So you know, so here I am. You know, and we got this stunt double sitting there with this long wig with the curly hair and the big goatee and the painted on tattoos. Yeah. So they painted on the tattoos. Yeah, like that's like a, that's how much of a perfectionist he is because that's really expensive, oh, right? You he, said that he went over budget to do all this. He made a human hair wig cost ten thousand dollars. Now it was weird because that same day that we were up there, the producers came up to the shoot and they said, "Jim, you're going so over budget. This is going to be the most expensive movie ever made." And he's like, he actually came when we were hanging out because there was lots of hours of that came back he's like yeah the producers were not just up here and i just guaranteed that i would pay the overage that if the if the film loses money it's coming out of my pocket so they're gonna let me keep doing it how the way i want to do it so yeah i mean he had the tattoos painted on he had a human hair wig for ten thousand bucks just for one quick scene that's that's how much of a perfection he is but wow a quick story about what kind of a guy he is when he was filming the abyss it was filmed in an abandoned nuclear reactor that they never finished. And he filled it with like 13 million gallons of water and shot the film inside this big concrete silo. And that's where they shot all the underwater scenes. So they were filming at this and Jim is out on location. He had rented or bought this jacked up Bronco, giant tires all, you know, so he could go off-roading on the downtime. And the big office building that was over by the abandoned reactor, this big glass tower, had these three sets of concrete stairs going up to the, you know, the big glass front. And the production office was in the ground floor there. And Jim told the head of the, the production manager, listen, I want to do some pickup shots this Saturday. That's normally when we filter the water to get it clearer, but it needs to settle for a day. And we, they would, Start the filtering Saturday night, Sunday morning, shut it off, let the water settle. By Monday morning, it was ready to shoot in again. So the production manager forgot that Jim told him not to do it. And they turned on the thing and Jim went in there Saturday morning. It was all cloudy. He got all super pissed. He jumps in this Bronco, dude, and he goes flying up the concrete stairs, boom, 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 drives through the plate glass window, gets out. Fires the production manager, gets back in, backs it up, disappears for two days. <laughs> wow. I mean, and this one other time he shot the um, the um, actor, Bill Paxton, you know, the actor. Yeah. Bill had a band called Martini Ranch. And, you know, he's an actor. And he's like, told Jimmy he wanted to shoot a video. Jim's like, let me do your video. And it's going to be like this Western video. If you look it up, hmm, okay. Band, look it up. This is great. It's like a Western scene. And there's all of these scenes swooping in, you know, like a helicopter shot. Well, Jim, low budget, decided that he was going to do all this in an ultralight. He was going to get a two-seat ultralight, strap himself in the front with a handheld camera. 
So this thing is coming in and Jim can't get the shot the way he wants it. So he undoes his his seatbelt that's holding him into this ultralight. He's leaning all the way over and they hit this gust of wind and he drops the camera and he's holding on for dear fucking life. Nearly, he's like, so the guy drops down really, really fast and trying to, comes in slow, Jim, you know, jumps off, takes a roll, nearly dies to get the shot for this silly music video. But that's Jim Cameron. He's just, wow. he's a fucking perfectionist. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it shows. He's really talented. In fact, in the abyss, all of those the actors had those big glass helmets. They didn't have such a thing. Jim's brother is a salvage diver up in British Columbia. And see, we sat down with his brother and they designed those helmets with the thick plate glass, the tempered glass. And they got a patent on it. And now that's like the industry standard. What? And they, they designed those helmets. Him and that's Jim. funny. That's crazy. Because he couldn't see the actor's facial expressions enough. So he designed this whole thing. He designed this underwater, like these things with two big propellers. That's right. Yeah. Because he made the movie, a documentary about that. Right. So I saw he that. invented that. Yeah. A waterproof camera on this thing. And we were up at, at, at Jim and Catherine's house for a barbecue. And, and the actor, rest his soul, Lance Hendrickson. Yeah. In the film, that's right. Who is a mad, he's a wild. So we're in Jim's garage drinking some beers and here's this thing sitting on this box. And Lance is like, what's this thing? And Jim's like, don't, Lance, don't even mess with that thing. That thing will take your fucking finger off. So don't even. So Lance walks up and he puts his finger and he hits the button. Wow. Blood just goes everywhere. Nearly takes his finger off. It, it didn't sever the bone. Oh, my God. So, you know, rushing to the hospital. Jesus. The whole barbecue. He gets all the stitches almost. Pretty much having to reattach it. The thing never really worked very well after that. And Jim's like, what are you, fucking idiot? What are you? He's like, well, I just wanted to see how bad it was. <laughs> God, oh my God. Yeah. Wow, he is a wild man. Yeah, wild man. But Jim, Jim's just, he's, he's a genius. He has all these ideas. And, and you know, so yeah, the most expensive film ever made, T2. That's sure pretty cool. Up. And the next thing, you know, everybody's like, holy shit, that's Ron Young. And it was just, I got my sad card. All my active friends hated my guts because they're like, you got a sad card? You're in the union? I'm like, yeah, he had to. It was a union shoot. So he called up the union and got me grandfathered in. And I was paying my dues. Never used it again. But oh, you never got to, I thought you were in a, you had some voiceover thing for Strange Days. Work, but that's not the actors, you know, it, it didn't require. Did you ever try to pursue that more? Or, or? No, I was too busy trying to be a failed musician, trying to be a failed actor. <laughs> you know? That's that's the only business more cutthroat than trying to be a musician, successful musician is trying to be a working actor, you know? Well, how, so how do you think you got so many great opportunities? Because, I mean, you had Little Caesar, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Slash, Terminator 2. Was this based on talent and reputation or networking or because I, you're I easy to work with? I think it's a combination of having, uh, having my own unique sound. You know, I have a signature voice. Um I work really hard. Um, I try to stay really humble and, and a team player. Um, I try to be personable. To me, personal relationships are, are more important than money or business. And I try to pe treat people accordingly that way. And so that winds up making me user-friendly, you know, mm. to work with. Um, 
And I guess maybe my reputation of working on something and getting fired, not having a bad attitude about it <laughs> suits me well. Has that happened? Well, you know, listen, I got fired from the slash thing. I didn't piss and moan or, you know. Was it really fire though? Or was it just like, cause that was more like an extended audition, right? I mean. Yeah, exactly, man. But again, this is, you know, this is the stuff that people get in trouble for. I won't name names. Every week they're on the internet on metal sludge and all these places talking shit about the other version of their band or their old band members. And mm. the way they stay relevant is by talking shit all the time and getting people to hate on them, you know? And I just, I've never been that guy, man. I just, mm-hmm. I don't air my dirty laundry in public. Plus I learned my lesson from the Geffen thing. that if you start talking shit about what's really going on publicly the people you work with can get really angry, if, you know, but I was, you know, I wanted people to know the truth. Right. Sometimes the truth will get you in trouble. You know. Yeah. Well, didn't you say too, that you learned that uh, you had a quote. It was interesting. It was like the miserable years helped you grow into the person that you are today. Like you're, you're thank you're grateful oh, for man. those times. Listen, I, you know, people sometimes say this is bullshit, but if I were to become a successful as guys like Jimmy Iovine and John Collada and Bob Rock were aiming to make me, and they were kind of very confident that would happen, I'd be dead or just a raging asshole because <laughs> I wouldn't have gone through any of the shit that I went through and learned any of the lessons that I had to learn of what's important, what's in, you know in in business, what's important in life. And I would have been one of those guys in bands that was crashing cars while I was getting loaded and killing other musicians or, you know, whatever the shit that you see other people who had so much more at their disposal in, in business and in finances and all that stuff that, you know, they, they never really matured past that, you know, like Tommy Lee is the perpetual 13 year old. He's sweetest guy in the world, but he's been Tommy Lee. So everything is just party, party, fun, fun, you know, and, uh, you know, there's stuff that when you when you hang out with him, it's just he hasn't gone through the things that a lot of my other musician friends have gone through and has a different attitude about, it, you know. Have you hung out with Tommy Lee? Yeah. We, one, actually, one night, me and Tommy were, I, I shouldn't say this publicly, but whatever, we were doing liquid morphine while getting tattooed together. <laughs> What the fuck? How do you do liquid morphine? Like just put it on your tongue you or something? It. You do shots of it. It was medical grade morphine painkiller. Jesus we Christ. Both, yeah, we were both getting slated. Well, it's like the early version of OxyContin. Okay. Know? And, you know, if you're going to get a whole bunch of... Me and Tommy used to hang out and laugh at because me and him were the most tattooed guys in the music business. Somebody had back pieces. Everybody had little right. daggers and Tasmanian devils and shit. And me and Tommy were the guys that were just going nuts. You know, I had a full back piece in 1987. Nobody had that at the time. And, you know, working on full sleeves by 1990. So, you know, it was a totally different time. So guys like Tommy and I used to just laugh that, you know, we're going to at some point, we're going to be covered all the way up past our eyeballs. What year was this where you're doing the liquid morphine? Was Was it 80s? Oh, okay. Yeah, 92, somewhere in there. That's like his, the height of crew, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, 
we're hanging out. This is like up at Tattoo Mania, Joe Monty's Tattoo Mania, right up on the Sunset Strip. And every weekend the place was, you know, the, the clubs were packed and the tattoo shop was packed. And there's all these little cubicles where the artists work. You have like four guys, five guys work. And then, then there was the room in the back for, you know, when girls got their breasts done or had to get naked where you couldn't be in the public eye. So, yeah, me and Tommy and Gil and a bunch of people are just hanging out back there. We're getting loaded on liquid morphine as we're all getting tattooed and, you know, just laughing about, yeah, dude, we're going to keep going at some point, you know. And, you know, the weird thing is, is that right at this point is when people like Roseanne Barr and Cher and all these famous actors were starting to get tattooed and it became, mm. it wasn't rebellious anymore. Right. You know? it was, it, this is when it became soccer mom. Ville, you know, definitely getting heavily tattooed. So, you know, the thing is, it's like, you know, guys like Tommy, they've, you know, at an early age, they got wealthy and successful, and their life is excess, you know. So, their level of doing things is to roll up in a limousine, you know, and have their assistant bring them their liquid morphine and you know, set up their drums and all this. And that's great. You know, God bless them. But the reality is, is compared to the consumers of music, that's another world compared Mm -hmm. to being able to relate to, which is why we always wanted to stay a working blue collar band, a working class kind of band. Because for us, it was important to be connected to people that way and write songs about that way. I mean, we don't do pay for meet and greets. We come out after every show and we'll sit out there and take as many photos and tell as many stories and listen to people tell us what the music means to us, to them, sign whatever they want to sign, meet whatever, whoever they want us to meet. Because listen, if we were Tom and Lee, we couldn't do that. There'd be too right. many people. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Same thing on social media. We can, we can, write back to people on social media and engage with people because we're not as big as them. And it sounds like bullshit that, you know, to say that, you know, to not be that famous or that rich or not engaged with so many tens of hundreds of thousands of people kind of cuts you off from the reality of your fans, but it does, mm-hmm. you know? So the blessing is for us is that we've made some of our best friends, you know, at the, at the merch table after a show, people all over Europe, all over the United States, people I talk to on social media, people that I talk to in, 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 you know, in day-to-day life now, because we met some really, really great people. And there's no, you know, when we get on the stage, we just make music. Mm -hmm. There's a chemistry that happens with five guys. Just because I sing doesn't make me any more elevated as a human being than somebody who is a mechanic, you know, a great mechanic, an individual mechanic, someone that's got a flair for what they do. And whether it be raising a kid or building a car or programming a computer, I sing. It sticks me out in the public eye. But I'm just a guy like everybody else. Okay, I get up on stage and I'm pouring my heart out and I do all the moves and the lights are going and it's loud and it's larger than life. But the guy inside is just like anybody else. And so to keep connected to that, I'm really grateful that there's attention that's driven and I get to do what I just adore doing with the guys that I adore doing it with. But just because 
in some cases that puts you in a limousine and puts, you know, brown M&Ms and champagne in a dressing room backstage. I, it, for me, it's like, I'm just a guy. Okay. I'm going to go up there and, and, you know, masturbate in public right now. When it's done, I'll come back out and sign whenever you want me to sign. But I'm no fucking different than anybody else. It's just what mm. I chose to do. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting now in 2021, I mean, people can be like back in the day, it was just like there was rock star, or there's movie star, but now you can be famous or not, not necessarily famous, but you can have a following or fans for like anything. Like you see these rock star celebrity chefs. And so, I mean, when I was a kid, I don't think there wasn't too many celebrity chefs. Now that's a thing. And the, the real rock stars now are, are IT guys, nerds that write apps, you know, the Zuckerbergs and right. And, you know, or people that have 4 million followers because they, they do makeup and while they're in a bikini or some kind of, or they, they eat ghost peppers, you know, <laughs> I mean, this is what makes people have more followers than my band does sure. TikTok or whatever. And so whatever, but, you know, but the thing is, is that I, I realized very early on in the beginning of social media that. I I can't convince anybody that I'm larger than life when talking to them on, on Facebook. You know what I mean? To post pictures of me in a strip club or, you know, I mean, I put pictures up of the cars that I build and the bikes that I build, but it's not about bragging. It's just about the, sh- this is the shit that I build. I if that, yeah, if that shit's that. cool to you, then that, like, why not share it? Yeah. And so I sell one to build one, whatever all of that shit is. I've, I've got other businesses that have made me enough money to start little projects, but it's not about, look at me, I'm a rock star and I have a life that you could never have. And you should worship me because I live up in this rarefied air this rarefied place and my friends are all rich and famous and oh god it's so great being me you poor people can't even talk to you on social media because i'm so fucking cool and in demand fuck that you know so very early on in myspace and friendster and all that i just let people take a peek behind the curtain you know here's a bunch of guys i mean we used to back in the day we used to roll in you know, like at the kiss shows, people thought we were the roadies. <laughs> we looked like the roadies, yeah. we acted like the roadies. We set up our own gear. You know, I, I used to, I used to fire guys if they were rude to waitresses when we were touring. It's like, you, you don't act like that. You represent us. Everybody is to be respected. We work with all these people. They don't work for us. We work with them. We go up and do what we do behind the stage. They do the scenes. They do what they do. And they're as good and as talented for what they do. They just don't become famous for it. Mm-hmm. You know, the guy that invents like the Timex watch, his product, the thing that he invented is on hundreds of millions of wrists. He, you could walk by him in the street. You never know who he was. But musicians and actors, we are the product. And some people don't do very well with all that attention. I don't. I'm way more comfortable on stage than I am when I get off stage and I have to actually have a conversation with somebody. I feel awkward, you know, I'm it's like, gay, hey, you know, and it's weird because there's some people and listen, you know, they tell me stories about a song they played at their wedding or they played at their, their mom's funeral or whatever and they tell me stories about how what we've created has been woven into the events of their life and that's greater than any platinum record or you know aston martin or anything man something yeah. created actually worked its way into someone's fucking life 
Right. And when people, because I'm in Terminator or I was on MTV, they have this conception about me and they meet me and they, they're kind of, you know, anxious or, you know, oh my God, I'm getting to meet the singer. And, 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 and I can see that. And I'm like, dude, I'm just a guy. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. It's cool. No, no, no. I said, okay, if I get a picture, people are shaking. I can feel that they're shaking. They're so tweaked. And that's because I, they've been listening to a song for 25 years. That's so important to them. And then they meet the guy that's actually singing it. And, and it has a physical and emotional effect on them. That blows me away. And yeah. the responsibility in that, that makes me a little uncomfortable. I'm like, dude, just relax. Take it, catch your breath. What do you want to talk about? Nice to meet your daughter, you know? And it's like, and then, you know, 10 years goes by and like we go and do a show like in Paris and there's a guy that he does these wooden cutouts. He's an incredible artist and he does like our logos and he makes these custom wooden signs. In fact, he 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 did this. Yeah, I don't know if you can see it or on the camera, I'll pick it up, but uh yeah it's like a lighter or something or that's it's it's just a little keychain it's just a keychain and on the back was celebrating the parish oh that's cool he makes these big friends and he does this and the first time we met him was like 10 years ago and he brings this just beautifully cut out three-dimensional little caesar logo and he's got his little daughter she's like i don't know nine or ten and so I meet his daughter, her name is Alice, you know, and then she, you know, the next year, see him again, the next year, see him again. And the next thing I know, I haven't seen him in about five, six years. And he shows up to give me these things, you know, with COVID and we hadn't been to Paris for a while. And there's Alice, she's getting ready to go to college, you know, and it's like, and I know these people, they've become part of my life. And, and I've stayed in contact with them on Facebook and I watch their trials and tribulations and the deaths and the weddings. And the, and that has all happened to me because of the gift of music. Yeah. And that is just <laughs> as worthy to me as some circle jerk Grammy or because dude, they, they, listen, let's face it. There's a lot of music that makes millions and millions of dollars. That is shitty music. <laughs> it's just it's right. just weak, weak ass shit. Be it in pop, be it in rock, be it in hip hop, whatever it is. It's just all of the planets aligned and corporate guys got behind it. It got traction, whatever. Doesn't necessarily reflect how good it is for the spiritual side of music and the important shit. So I had to learn that lesson early on that my self worth is not denoted by number of units sold. You know, so. There are some obviously incredibly talented people that sell millions and millions of records. It's because it's undeniable. The Chris Stapletons and Adele's and mm-hmm. all these people, the Bruno Mars, and it's just incredible fucking talented people that it's just unbelievable what they do. And they it's obvious. Then there's other people that are just they're drafting and they whatever up into the so on a personal level, you know, that doesn't really mean anything. So all of this other stuff, that the gifts that come with music, the camaraderie, the relationships, the friendships, the shared experiences, the, the, the moments in time. And I say this from the stage every night, that 
I thank the audience for coming, for giving us, the band, the gift of music. Because without the audience, we're a bunch of guys jerking off in a room in L.A. called <laughs> rehearsal. Mm-hmm. As soon as you go out in front of a crowd of people, that night is special. Their energy and the band's energy affects the tempos. It affects the expression. It affects everything. And that particular song and that particular moment will never be played that way, the same way ever again. And we give it huge amounts of reverence. And that's because of the energy coming from the crowd. And so they give us that gift every night to inspire us and to give us something to play off of. And without that, man, we're dead in the water. And we're not doing it in arenas or huge theaters. We're doing it in clubs, you know, but it's enough business so that we can keep doing it. Yeah. Well, and, and we get on some bigger shows as a support act and we're great. Yeah. And you do the festivals and stuff and hopefully you'll come there. Yeah. I'm in Arizona. So if you ever do a show here, let me know. I'd love to come see you guys. I've never seen yeah, you well, live. We're going to start getting back out, do a weekend runs. Good. Like, like Junkyard does. And maybe yeah. even with Junkyard. We, we did a run with Junkyard. We're, you know, teaming up. That'd be perfect. Uh, and doing that kind of stuff. But yeah. So, you know, for us, man, it, it's, we know so many talented people who don't get to do that. You know, we have enough of a business. So bringing it back full circle, I've had enough of a career that I get to do what I love to do with guys that I love to do it with, with people who I love to do it for. Mm -hmm. So everything after that, I'm already a rich man, you know? Yeah. All the other stuff is a lot of complications and, you know, all I know is that when you look at Britney Spears and the stories of the Tommy Lees and the Vince Neils and the, there's a lot of drama that goes on when you have a lot of money and a lot of attention and a lot of stuff. It's and to be honest, I, I you know, because of other business ventures I have, I've been around billionaires. I've my life is so wild. I, I got to dine with Fidel Castro in 1997. What? Yes, I did this thing. I, I, I also do behind the scenes production stuff. I ran a venue called the Key Club in LA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So I was the production manager there for ten years when the band was on hiatus. Sure. And at the time, I got asked to come and be um, a sound and monitor engineer for this big concert going on in Cuba. The concept was Bill Clinton was the president. He was trying to open up Cuba and stopped the embargo. And he thought the best way to start that was to do some cultural stuff. So in one way, the Baltimore Orioles went down there and played a baseball game in front of the Cubans. And then uh, Montel Jordan, Mick Fleetwood, Bonnie Raitt, Gladys Knight, Michelle Indigacello, um, a whole bunch of musicians went down to Cuba, got put up in the Hotel Nacional. We went down there early, set up six recording studios, they wrote songs of all of the Cuban icons of music, Chicho Valdez and all the Bena Vista Social Club guys. They wrote all these songs, picked all the songs they were going to do. They did a rehearsal and we did a giant concert at the Karl Marx Theater in Havana. Now, we go down there and all the equipment is from 1959. And so we had to smuggle in all this PDPA gear and they didn't even have duct tape we brought duct tape and, and see that's what i've heard yeah I, i've talked to people from cuba the and they're like and you can't even go to the hardware right. store and get no, like there's no, no yeah no so anyway we did this quick renovation of this thing and so i got there to go down there and at the end of the 
when the concert was over, we had a big, you know, banquet. And so they brought the production crew up in a line to, you know, I mean, I just got to shake his hand and say like one oh, word, but still pretty cool. So, right. So in my life, I've met, you know, leaders of countries and I hung out with heads of outlaw motorcycle clubs. So that's kind of a broad <laughs> you know, spectrum. That's of, very cool. Of, of the people that, that have kind of crossed my path all because of music. Yeah. You know, all because of music. That's and amazing. You know so my other businesses, I, I have, I have hung out on yachts of billionaires, you know, and I've got to tell you, man, that more likely than not, the more money you get, the less happy you are. It's hmm. really weird. Interesting. It's, it's what I call the complications of abundance. And some people don't do well with the complications of abundance. And it winds up making their life sometimes just really filled with a lot of drama. Just having all that money. And the way I look at it is, you know, I've had times in my life where I've had a lot, you know, a good chunk of money around. And I've had times when I'm fucking living on ramen. You know, and the reality is, is that the times when I'm eating ramen, you know, it, it, there wasn't a big hole inside of me. I just didn't have something good to eat. And so the money doesn't fill those holes. It'll get you a lot of other stuff that's fun and it gives you that piece of, piece of mind. There's no doubt. But it isn't the instant happiness that it brings because it always comes with caveats and it comes with disclaimers and it comes with obligations. And a lot of times, especially being in the music business, which is about excess and about a lot of the things in human character that aren't necessarily that noble, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, indiscriminate sex and drugs and all that. And that's fun. But when that becomes your life 24 seven, I can name, <clears throat> You know, tons of guys who were on the dead were miserable. Yeah. Or, you know, <clears throat> in a lot of trouble. Right, for sure. Well, and it's it's good that, you know, you had your little bout with the heroin and stuff and you got off of that and you're clean and sober now. And yeah, so, so things got, are going well. I got that perspective, man. Yeah. You know? And and it just, it, it's, you know, it, it's the things that really make you a rich man have nothing to do with a bank account. They really don't. Now, I'd love... To have all of that knowledge and now have that huge back account, <laughs> but life just doesn't always work that way. Right, so, for sure. Well, know. I want to thank you so much for doing this interview. I like to end each episode with a charity. Is there one that, that you want to give a shout out to here, or one that you work with, or a cause that is near and dear to your heart? Well, if anybody could just support their local animal shelters so that they don't have to kill so many of them, especially spay and neuter, so that we can kind of curtail this. Um, I'm a huge animal guy and yeah. there's enough charities helping out humans. So, uh, right. you know, and even if that means buying a huge bag of dog food and just dropping it off to the local shelter so they can keep some pets alive until somebody can maybe come along and rescue would just be great. So, okay. I'll put that in the notes. More importantly, look out for your neighbors, man. That too. That's important for now sure. Yeah. COVID, 
We're starting to become a whole bunch of assholes. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Stop being assholes and get back to just having some basic human decency, respect, and, and care and kindness. No matter I, where, yeah. where you stand on shit. I agree with all that. So I will put your website in the notes along with the charity, and uh, everybody can check out your music and hopefully see you on tour soon. Great. Okay. Thanks, Thanks so nice much, Ron. That was fun. You, all right. You too. Bye bye. Take care. Bye bye. Well, that was a lot of fun. Uh, great stories from Ron. The Tommy Lee one is just insane. I've, I've never heard of anyone drinking morphine before, and uh, I don't recommend it. It sounds very dangerous, but he's Tommy Lee, and he's got nine lives or 9,000 lives. I don't know. It's crazy. Uh, Ron's also got some great music. Uh, so I just checked out that uh, Manic Eden album. It's actually not on Spotify. It's on YouTube, but it's a really good album. And, of course, all his Little Caesar stuff is on Spotify or wherever you stream music. Uh, make sure to check the website or follow Little Caesar on social media for show dates and updates on new albums and things like that. And while you're on social media, I'd love for you to give me a follow. And, of course, make sure you subscribe to the show on YouTube or wherever you listen, Spotify, whatever. I really appreciate your support. Uh, my show continues to grow, and it's really cool to see that, and I'm very grateful for that. So have a great rest of your day and remember to shoot for the moon.